This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Let's get an update on the situation involving UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He has been hospitalized for COVID-19. And as we found out late yesterday afternoon, he's also now been moved into the intensive care unit. According to British news, that he remains conscious uh, and that right now he's not using a ventilator, but he is getting some kind of oxygen support. So for more on this, we're joined now by Global News European Bureau Chief Crystal Gaman saying, Crystal, thanks so much for being here. Good morning. Thank you. So what is the latest on his condition? Well, he remains in that ICU at St. Thomas's Hospital in London. As you mentioned, uh, he is not on a ventilator. He has been given oxygen at times. Uh, government officials uh, were set, or at least were hoping, to get some more information on exactly how he is doing. It was a bit of a surprise to everyone late Monday afternoon when the news came out that he was, in fact, being moved to the ICU on doctor's advice. Uh, it, it was presented to the the public that you know him being admitted to hospital on Sunday was a precautionary move that he just needed to get some tests done Boris Johnson himself taking to social media to say that you know he was he was all right he was in good spirits and was in fact still working from his hospital bedside so quite the progression from going in for a few tests to being moved to the ICU unit where he of course would have access to more specialized equipment more specialized teams and uh, and and more surveillance should he need any kind of stepped up care. And what has the reaction been to this as well, Crystal? Like, what is the British public saying? I think it was a bit of surprise, to be honest. We all knew that he was uh, experiencing symptoms, that he had tested positive. Um, you know, he had taken to social media several times to say that, you know, he had mild symptoms and was was doing well. Uh, but then he shared the news last week that he was extending his self-isolation because he was still struggling with a high fever. And even when we uh, saw him for the clap for uh, care workers last week, you know, he uh, he kind of just popped his head out. He, he wasn't... Uh, Um, as enthusiastic as we've seen him in the past. So we know that he is struggling with this virus. And the virus itself, the timeline here is of interest because we know that for some people will get it, they'll have mild symptoms and they'll just get better. We saw that, for example, with Matt Hancock, the health secretary, or Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer of health for England. They also were um, displaying symptoms, got better, did self-isolation. Prince Charles, another one. not the case with Boris Johnson. So uh, he is needing some extra help and care. And of course, when it comes to this virus, so little is known about it. Uh, it is new. We know that people don't have any antibodies to it. There's no real treatment or, of course, there's no vaccine at this point. So um, people are watching very closely. And uh, it's it's interesting and should be noted that the Queen is also being kept up to date on the Prime Minister's condition. Right, because she did have some contact with him as well. Like, isn't the concern now all the people who might have had contact with him? Well, he's been in isolation for for at least 10 days. So uh, as soon as he found out, he did go into isolation. Uh, the Queen was also in contact with uh, with Prince Charles. Uh, oh, before right, of course. He, uh, yeah, before he was uh, diagnosed. So she has been in isolation. Uh, there was, you know, even to the point when she did her broadcast on Sunday, when that message was 
recorded. Uh, Buckingham Palace talked a little bit about the efforts that were undertaken to make sure that she would be protected and safe um, and the, the limited number of people that were a part of that broadcast and, and near her. So, um, you know, social distancing coming into play there and hand washing all of those protectionary measures. So, um, you know, the, it's been a while to do the contract uh, contact tracing for Boris Johnson. Now it's just a matter of, of watching him, keeping an eye on him as doctors are clearly doing at St. Thomas's mm-hmm. Hospital. It has had a number of COVID patients taken there. So obviously, um, you know, they are skilled and it is a, a fantastic hospital. We've heard a number of officials saying that he is good in good hands there. But it's just a matter of watching to see how this virus progresses in the prime minister. And uh, quickly then, Crystal, as well, to wrap up, the lockdown now in, in the UK anyway is in its third week. Is it working or does it appear to be working? From what we're hearing from officials, it's just too early to tell. It's been three weeks. At the end of three weeks, it was supposed to be reviewed. Uh, we do know that the numbers are starting to increase. The The rate of infection is going up. Now, it appears to, to be doubling every uh, three-ish days, so it, it's not at the rapid pace mm-hmm. just yet, but we are seeing the, the rate going up, as, as well as the number of deaths, unfortunately. Um, so we do know that we're sort of at that, that you know, accelerated movement, that that increased right. movement up. Uh, so I would say that, uh, you know, it's too early and what we've heard from government officials at yesterday's briefing, we'll get another one later this afternoon, that they're just not prepared to say anything about removing those measures as of yet. All right, Crystal, thank you. You're welcome. That is Crystal Gaman saying the Global News European Bureau Chief updating us on the situation involving UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson in hospital, in intensive care, getting some oxygen support, but they said he is not on a ventilator at this time. We'll keep you posted on how that goes. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, there's a lot of things that we would normally be doing at this time of year if this were a normal time, which it is not. But one of those things would be getting ready for farmer's markets. Everybody loves in the springtime to start going back to their farmer's markets. You know, we like to buy local. And I think the idea of buying local has become so much more important right now. Food security issues are such a huge thing for us to be thinking about right now. And get this, the markets, it turns out, are going to be open all over the province, uh, except they're going to have a directive that they must provide this local food during the pandemic. So that means things are going to look a little bit different than what you're used to. Uh, plus, for the first time, you're actually, and I'm excited about this one because I'm definitely going to do it, you're going to be able to do some of your farmer's market shopping online. So how is all of this going to work? Well, our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to Heather O'Hara, who's the executive director of the BC Association of Farmer's Markets. So I think it probably goes without saying that I'm sure you are quite pleased to hear that BC Farmers Markets would still be able to open up for the season despite everything that's going on with the pandemic. Yeah, you know, we, we BC Farmers Markets, really view ourselves first and foremost as food, food retail, and local food. So yeah, we, we were very happy to have the support of government and the BC Centre for Disease Control and PHO, Provincial Health Officer, to reinforce the fact that farmers markets are first and foremost retail and access to food here in British Columbia. Yes, absolutely. I think you kind of said it right there, but I'll ask you anyways to elaborate a little bit on what the importance is to the population of British Columbia that we have access to farmers markets. Sure. So, you know, like uh, grocery 
Farmers markets are everywhere across our province. So that sometimes comes as a surprise to people. We operate, our members, there's 145 member farmers markets of our association across the province. Haida Gwaii, Terrace, Hazleton, small northern BC, remote communities into the Kootenays, Okanagan, lower mainland, Vancouver Island, and so forth. And what it does is give those local farmers a chance to sell and distribute their products and food to local residents. So it's really important that we keep these thousands of farmers who produce food at a community local level able to grow and local residents to be able to access that food, particularly in this in this point in time. How have the BC farmers that you've been speaking to been affected by COVID-19? You know, I think um, a couple of things. One is there's probably no more resilient group in this world than farmers. They are used to battling weather, insect infestations, you know, all kinds of challenges, the difficulties with growing food, but certainly um, are rising to the challenge in terms of making sure that they're planting, that they're hyper aware of how important it is for British Columbians to have access to local food in their communities and really relying on those markets and our uh, physical markets and now our online additional market support to really be able to connect that food they're growing with those consumers across the province. Now, when I think back to times that I've been to a farmer's market, you know, I can picture this long row of stalls on either side and there is food and there's trinkets and there is art and there is usually a big crowd of people and it's usually so busy that it can almost be a little bit difficult to kind of navigate your way through the crowd without bumping into other people. I imagine, though, that this year is going to look really, really different. Well, it simply has to look different. So how are you going to be accommodating those new social distancing rules? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So a couple of things, uh, you know, our farmer's markets this season will not likely look like any other farmer's market season in the past. So as per the provincial health officer and with our, in our agreement as well, in-person physical farmer's markets will sell food only. And they have modified their operations similar to other grocery and other essential services as well. So we have a very robust modifying your farmer's market webpage on the BCFM website to really use all those best practices that are being used elsewhere. So social distancing, markers on the ground, limiting access, entry points, uh, and so forth. And we've obviously, many weeks ago already, eliminated any kind of social activity that would encourage gathering of any kind. So those kinds of things we eliminated, well, close to almost a month ago at this point. But really managing crowds, managing people, similar to any other essential service that is uh, using some of those BTCDC social distancing guidelines and other good practices. It's amazing how counterintuitive it seems to operate a business in this current climate, because typically you're doing anything that you can to generate a crowd to bring people in. As you said at a farmer's market, you know, maybe you have a band and and that's bringing people to the event so that you can sell more products. And now everything that you're doing in order to stay in business means keeping the crowd away. I mean, this really is a crazy time that we're living in. You know, it's a really interesting time. I think when I reflect on this right now, what it is really doing is re-establishing and reinforcing the fact that farmers markets are first and foremost that vital access channel direct place where local food being grown and supporting our local food systems is meeting 
um, the consumer. And um, for me, it's kind of getting to the core and the essence of what a farmer's market is. That said, all those other activities are certainly wonderful things in a, at a different time and place. Um, and, you know, we, we look forward to that in the years to come again, obviously, to have that beautiful community gathering space. But right now, farmer's markets are doing what is at their core, their essence, which is connecting food and farmers to people looking to get good, healthy food in our province. Yeah, very well said. Now, the BC farmer's markets sort of in response to this pandemic, really moving into the digital age. Can you talk a little bit about what is happening online? Sure. So bcfarmersmarkettrail.com is where all of our markets are listed. We're updating their hours and start dates and end dates. That is kind of like right now we're in flux to get their new 2020 dates. And we're also, that's where if a market has an online market, option, that is where the people will find it in the in the weeks to come. So how does the online market work? Do I order online and then it gets delivered? Uh, it'll be up to the market to decide whether they have a pickup. So the market may in still fact be the key pickup distribution point and the or some farmers may choose to deliver. So that's going to be a contingent and depending on the market, each is going to be different. And number two, what the vendors can and will do. All right, that's important to know because I plan on participating in this. That's Heather O'Hara, the Executive Director of the BC Association of Farmers Markets. Some markets are going to be opening up this week, as a matter of fact, to go with the ones that are already open. For instance, in the city of Vancouver, uh, both Riley Park and Hastings Farmers Markets are open. Riley Park is on Saturdays. Hastings is on Sunday. The Riley Park Farmers Market is open year-round. The Hastings Farmers Market is open until April the 26th. In Metro Vancouver, the New West Farmer's Market is open. Over in Victoria, the Moss Street Farmer's Market is open. It was the first market, actually, to launch its online version. Uh, So keep an eye on that. Other markets uh, will likely be opening up, usually right around like end of April, first week of May or so is when most of those farmer's markets open. So keep an eye on their website to see how you can support your local farmers, which is so important at this time. This is Mornings with Simi. Our percentage of new cases, as you can see, has been slowing. It's been bending, and that's really important, and it's testament to the effort that everybody here in British Columbia has been making over these past few weeks. But we must keep that firewall strong. That's Dr. Bonnie Henry with one of her many reminders to us about how British Columbians need to be strong. And if you've been following the number of daily confirmed cases across Canada, and I know many of you are very closely following those numbers, you've probably noticed that BC seems to be doing a lot better than, say, Ontario or Quebec when it comes to controlling the spread of COVID-19. Way too early for BC to take any kind of a victory lap on this, but the numbers do seem to be on the right track. So we thought, let's break those down a little bit more. Joining us now is Stephen Hopshin-Can. He's an epidemiologist at the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Glad to be here. So when you look at the numbers, what do you see? Uh, We do see some positive uh, signs that um, maybe we have uh, flattened out the curve. Um, You know, there are a lot of quarantine measures that have been put in place and it seems to be uh, so far looking good. Uh, That's what we were hoping at this stage. 
but um, we have to wait a little bit to see if those numbers continue. As an epidemiologist then, what to you are the most important numbers? I know people break down whether it's, you know, number of hospitalizations, number of people in critical care, but what do you look for? Uh, Well, one of the things to look for is the percentage of change in COVID cases. Um, So we see um, good trends in terms of those changes. Um, Like uh, we saw a huge spike in Quebec um, towards the end of March when they combined confirmed and probable cases, um, but now those are trending downwards, and um, we're seeing some positive changes here for sure. All right, and so what do you think BC is doing differently in your area of expertise? What's different here? Um, well, I think one of the advantages we have uh, over Ontario and Quebec is we have a later spring break. So um, they had their earlier spring break when things weren't as restrictive, and a lot of people Uh, came back from their holidays and came back with COVID and were able to spread that around. Uh, Whereas our restrictions in terms of like uh, reducing the number of uh, people at at gatherings uh, came in place around mid-March and that was just around the time spring break was starting and there were travel restrictions uh, being uh, broadcast. So I think these made a difference. Um, Not as many people coming in with COVID and spreading it within the community. So you think we kind of got lucky? It's it's part luck, part luck, yes. Now, being an epidemiologist, uh, this is a job that is very popular right now, Stephen. Uh, lots of uh, people who are in your line of work are talking about this. Uh, what do you think are some of the misperceptions that people have about this? Um, well, I think uh, one of the important things that we've seen is uh, the social social distancing measures. When they were first put in place, I think um, we didn't see as many changes as we wanted to with businesses and in- individuals. And I think over the past few weeks, we've seen both uh, businesses and individuals getting better at social dis- distancing, mm-hmm. um, you know, less crowd gathering and... Um, you know, at grocery stores and other businesses, you see people uh, definitely staying apart. Uh, so that's a really positive sign. Do you think, how, okay, how long do you think this is going to last? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, there's some concerns now with um, uh, warmer weather during the summer, and we've got an upcoming long weekend where people usually get together with family and friends. So we're hoping... Um, you know, despite the warm weather, people are going to continue to uh, practice social distancing and not gather and, and not affect uh, our numbers as uh, time progresses towards the summer. Yeah, are you concerned about that Easter weekend coming up? It is a little concerning. I mean, the message has been put out there, but, um, you know, if people see positive signs, maybe they think, okay, we've done what we need to do and we can go back to normal. And, Uh, We're really not at that stage yet. Uh, We still have to practice social distancing. That's very important. Now, Stephen, are there lessons from this that you hope will stick with people long after this is over? Um, Yeah, it's important that people remember uh, this this pandemic. Um, You know, these are changes we don't hope happen again, but we never know if this sort of thing will happen again. Um, It'll it'll sure be back uh, next winter. So uh, there may be a bit of social distancing that we need to do next fall, depending on when the availability of vaccine 
comes to Canada. So we'll have to wait and see. So do you think the single most important thing people can do right now is that social distancing? Yeah, I think that's very important. Um, a lot of people are uh, wondering, you know, where, whether they need to wear a mask in public or not. Um, but it becomes less important when um, people aren't gathering together and people uh, uh, keep at least six feet apart when they're out in public and hopefully stays home uh, as much as possible. But is that a message, do you think, for us here in BC versus Ontario and Quebec, where the situation is different? Uh, I think it's the same message everywhere. Um, you know, it may take a little bit longer for Quebec and Ontario uh, to see some more positive changes, but I think the message is pretty much the same uh, everywhere. All right, so do you think this is the way it's going to be for the next couple of months then? Um, that's hard to predict. Um, it's possible, but um, yeah, it's hard to predict how much uh, change in weather will affect um, the transmission of the virus and uh, people's individual behavior will um, maybe affect the declines. Uh, we've seen some positive trends in some other countries around the world, so hopefully that will continue for us. When you say change in weather, do you mean that idea that in warmer weather it perhaps won't spread as quickly? Yeah, we're not really sure um, how much that's going to play in this particular uh, pandemic, but there is hope that um, maybe it's less transmissible as the weather improves, uh, but we'll have to wait and see. We will. Stephen, thank you for your time. Okay, great talking with you then. That is Stephen Hopson Ken, epidemiologist at UBC at the School of Population and Public Health, uh, talking about the numbers. So when you're looking at those BC numbers and you look at what's happening in other provinces, you think, whoa, what what is the difference here? One, BC had some early cases. Remember, with what, early February, I think we had like one or two, and it stayed at a very low number for a while. So one, we had kind of early exposure to the issue of COVID-19, but that difference really does seem to be the spring break issue, whereas back east uh, in central Canada, they had an earlier spring break. And remember Premier Doug Ford, who has been amazing the last couple of weeks, he took a lot of flack that first week for saying, everybody go and enjoy yourself. Uh, And health officials were saying, no, 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 please don't travel and don't do that. Uh, But made a big difference. Also, I've heard uh, and read about how the return of the snowbirds in such massive numbers in Ontario and Quebec also uh, has had an impact on their numbers there. So for BC, we're doing the right things, but we don't have those extra circumstances that Ontario and Quebec have had to deal with here as well. This is Mornings with Simi. It does seem unbelievable that in this time of sometimes seeing those empty grocery store shelves, that there could be some items that we're just getting rid of. But we are, and those items happen to do with milk, actually. Some BC farms are said to be dumping milk because they're having problems getting it to the store. We wanted to find out more about this. So joining us now, Jeremy Dunn, the BC Dairy Association General Manager. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning, Simi. All right, so is this true? Because I see pictures of it, I hear about it, but you tell us. What's happening? It, it is true. It's uh, uh, There's some disposal of milk uh, on some farms in BC, about you know about three percent of of what our our weekly production is is being disposed. This is being seen right across Canada, in parts of the United States uh, and other parts of the world, in, including New Zealand. Uh, it's a challenge when 
uh, our demand and, and our lives as, you know, as our lives change so quickly and where we consume our food, the supply chain is, uh, is working as hard as it can to catch up. So is that this, so there's just too much milk that has been produced? Like where would this milk have normally gone? Yeah, so we're producing the same amount of milk that uh, we've produced uh, over the last number of months. Uh, what we've seen is a, a rapid increase at retail for about the first three or four days, uh, maybe the first week during this the social distancing uh, time. And then restaurants, coffee shops completely fell off. Tourists are not here in Vancouver or in Whistler, so there are a lot fewer mouths to feed. Um, and we're still producing the same amount of milk. And that milk is going into different products. Uh, you don't see uh, bakeries making donuts and muffins for their uh, daily customers. Those right. use a lot of dairy. And those little, you know, those little creamers you put your coffee in, there's no need for any of those because people are drinking it at home. So we've got to get the product with our partners in processing into different containers to get it to people's houses. Right. So even all the coffee shops, house, all those double doubles, all of that. So that's, that's made a huge hit on the industry. It's an incredible amount of dairy is, is consumed in the food service sector. And, and uh, you know, our, the hearts of farmers really go out to, to people that work in food service, our friends in, in, in the retail business who are working overtime to stock shelves. I, I know, Personally, I went to my grocery store. There wasn't as much milk on the shelf five days ago. I went on Saturday. The shelf was full of milk. We know people are working hard to catch up. It's just it's a tough time for everybody in Canada. And, and catching up to what our, what's the changes in our society is, is a challenge. So are, are these processors then, are they adjusting, Jeremy? Are they having to scale back production? Like, is any of that going to happen? There, you know, it's, it milks a, it, raw milk uh, needs to leave the farm uh, every two days. It, it's a very perishable product before it's processed. So processors are adjusting daily based on the orders they're getting from retail. So on Friday, orders were down significantly. On Monday, they rose significantly. We're hopeful today is is a good day and, and people are, are, are buying milk. Uh, the last thing a farmer wants to do uh, is milk disposed of on the farm. It's not something we've really seen ever here in BC, and uh, we're, we're hopeful that the, the system will uh, will catch up quickly um, so that people can have the products in their homes that they want. So in what ways then might that happen? So is, is it more milk just going into milk jugs and milk cartons, and you're hoping people will buy more of it? Well, we know people are going to buy more, but that's evidenced by the, the shelves not having as much on them as, as we'd want. It's the, the companies that are involved in getting the milk from the processors to the retailers, uh, making sure they have uh, enough workforce and, and enough trucks to get the milk there. And it's the processors retooling some lines to, uh, to get the milk into the, the, the products, into the jugs that we need for our houses. So that's all happening you know as we speak to be able to to catch up to that um it's uh you know and and when we had excess processing capacity late last week uh our friends at saputo reached out to to the milk board uh and we have a number of of, uh a number of of partners come together and we put forty thousand liters into food banks in bc because we had the processing capacity we didn't have the demand we used the processing capacity to get the milk to people who need it Wow. Okay. So that's impressive. Then it is amazing to me from what you're describing about how nimble the the dairy industry has been able to be through this. 
we're trying. We're not as nimble as <laughs> it can't change overnight, but they're trying as quickly as possible. So, you know, we had it, it was about six or seven companies that came together to to get food to food banks. It was better transport to get the milk from the farm to the Saputo processing plant and Cisco and Save on Foods and Associated Grocers got it to food banks, BC and Food Mesh that distribute it to further food banks. So it, it, it takes a lot of different organizations. All these companies are really stretched right now. Uh, you know, government declared a lot of businesses, essential services, including dairy. All those people are working really hard uh, to make sure that those of us that are self-isolating, and, and I'm in my house right now, and yeah. uh, those of us that are self-isolating uh, can do that, but still have all the things we need uh, to live lives the best we can. So the will that be something that is repeated, do you think, in the future, the idea that if there is, they look at the schedule and they think, okay, we're going to have too much milk at the end of this week, can they do that again, send it off to the food banks? If we've got the processing capacity and we have the excess milk, then then we know that there's commitment to get more in the food bank. Uh, we're actually working right now to get uh, to get a bunch of cheese into food banks. Uh, there's a there's a lot of cheese. In fact, most cheese is consumed in the food service sector, and so we have some cheese processing capacity, and uh, we'll look to get some cheese into food banks. And and if we you know farmers want their their milk to be consumed by people who love it and need it it's nutritious and the last thing we want to do is is have it disposed on farm the cheese processing capability then is that something that will impact us down the line a little bit like how long does it take for the cheese to be made and get to market well and that's the challenge that our milk boards uh, across canada are are dealing with you know we're, we're in an oversupply situation on the farms right now but when we all get back to life, we need to have the milk there that we're going to expect when we go to Tim Hortons to get our double-double. And so we need our cows to, you know, cows, you can't turn them off and you can't turn them back on. And so, you know, we uh, we need to have the, the, the supply there when we need it. So it's, it is adjusting on a really on a daily basis. Have you ever seen the kind of cooperation, Jeremy, that you're seeing now in the industry? You know, this is uh, dairy's a dairy's a big family. Um, which is one of the reasons it's, it's such a great business to work in. Um, and, uh, but I will say that, uh, that the understanding and cooperation between everybody is, is probably at, a, at an all-time high. And that's, uh, I think that's a good thing for us in British Columbia and Canada here, that, that people are working together uh, at this time. That's what we like to hear. Jeremy, thank you. You're welcome. That's Jeremy Dunn, the general manager of the BC Dairy Association, talking about how BC farms are struggling right now because they're trying to deal with excess production. So much of what they produce goes to the food services sector, which, of course, is mostly shut down right now. So what to do with all the milk, all the cheese and all of that? And they're trying to be nimble about it, as you as you heard there. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about some of the normal things that we would be going through at this time of year. For instance, uh, the ski season would be coming to an end. Thoughts would be turning more to summer pursuits. And with that, with summer, with hotter temperatures, with drier temperatures, there would inevitably come wildfire season. But with all the news about COVID-19 recently, we haven't really thought a lot about that. Well, the BC Wild Service Wildfire Service has, and they are currently ramping up their training as the season approaches. But even they have had to change things up a little bit because of the coronavirus pandemic. Joining us now to talk more about that is Jody Lucius, who's a spokesperson with the BC Wildfire Service. Jody, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. What kind of preparations would normally be going on at this time of year? 
so this time of year is normally quite busy for us. Uh, we do have our crew starting to return, and uh, so there is a, a significant requirement for training. Um, our fitness testing usually happens around this time of year, different things like that. So it is normally quite a busy time as we lead up to the season. And so how is that different this year? Well, there's a few things that we're doing. Um, obviously, our number one uh, priority right now is uh, the health and safety of our crews and all of our staff members. And so we're looking at developing protocols related to physical distancing and taking other precautions. Um, some of those include things like uh, we canceled our new recruit boot camps this year. So those um, normally would involve about 200 uh, new firefighter recruits coming to a central location in Merritt, staying for a week, getting a bunch of training, and then being placed into positions across the province. This year, we've had to do that a little bit differently. And so instead of everybody coming into Merritt, where we felt like there was a, an increased risk of potential exposure, mm. um, they'll be training in their placement locations in smaller groups in those uh, various regions across the province. So um, changes like that are occurring almost on a daily basis, to be honest. Uh, boy, has recruitment changed at all? Do you still have the same number of people? That hasn't changed at all. So uh, most of our recruiting, other than a few uh, seasonal positions and, and, you know, regular turnover for full-time roles and things like that. Most of our recruiting will have occurred uh, by now. So uh, people are coming in in the same numbers that we were expecting them to. And, and it's more just now how do we get them ready to respond um, in a little bit different manner. Now, are there assessments that are done as well, Jody? like taking a look ahead at what the weather has been like over win- winter? How do things look for the summer? Yeah, so we always uh, are looking ahead, although it is challenging in any season to predict what the fire season is going to look like. Uh, we do get monthly seasonal outlooks from our predictive services team. So those include a bit of look at the snowpack in the, across the province, as well as some other factors, um, the drought conditions, for example, going into the winter, things like that. Um, the most recent uh, versions of that that we have are from March, so we're just waiting for our April versions. Um but the challenging part for us is that things that uh, really contribute to wildfire, things like lightning, um, any sort of extended heat waves, when we get the rain, how frequently, that kind of thing. We can't predict that very far in advance. Unfortunately, no one can. And so it's still really challenging to see what right. that fire season might look like. But I guess we can tell by the snowpack, how dry the ground is. Like, what was the snowpack like this year? Yeah, so we've had above average snowpack in most of the province. That's good. Um, yeah, it is good, um, although, you know, that leads to concerns over flooding right. as well. And I'm, I'm no expert in that, but uh, we are also uh, preparing our crews should they be needed to support flooding. And so how will all of this play out? Like, are you planning for this pandemic situation to be continuing into those summer months? We certainly are. So we're... Um, you know, based on what we're hearing from the public health officers, as well as, uh, you know, our own look into our crews and whatnot. Um, we've implemented things like a tracking system for our staff, for example, that basically will give us a snapshot of who's available, um, maybe who's working from home for various reasons, um, whether we have exposure within um, our own employees, uh, that type of thing, so that we are really focused on addressing those issues if they come up early rather than kind of having to be reactive to them. Is it challenging when you're talking about the training of the 200 new recruits? Are they doing them sort of in their own communities at this point? So they'll be done in the locations where they're placed. So um, basically that could be at any one of our um, locations across the province. So for a lot of folks, that won't be their home location, but it will be the location that they call home for the summer. Right. Okay. This Boy, this is a real challenging summer, as if you guys haven't had a, a, enough of those in the last four or five years. 
It's true. It adds a new uh, a new dimension to it for sure. But I think uh, we've created what we've called an adaptation and continuity team, and uh, we've divided that into four different groups, and they're all kind of focused on different areas of our business in order to assess the the increased risk of exposure and what that means for our business. And so I think we're we're positioning ourselves well to be able to respond. But of course, um, it is unknown for everybody, so it's it's a challenge. I'll bet it is. Okay. Now, last year, Jody, it didn't seem like it was that bad of a wildfire year. Yeah, we we got pretty lucky last year, I would say, in that the weather cooperated with us and we had, um, you know, a fair amount of rain kind of spread across the season, which really helped to keep that wildfire activity low. So uh, very much appreciate that after a couple of busy seasons before that. And so what do you look for in the month of in the months of like April and May? Um, you know, for us, it can be a little bit busier for wildfires in the south. Um, we do tend to see uh, some drying, and of course, there's lots of dead grass and things on the ground. And so it can, um, as those valley bottoms dry out and whatnot, can be a bit of a busier month for uh, wildfires. And then we tend to see a bit of a decline when things start to green up. Uh, the the landscape is just less susceptible to fire. And then we go back into kind of a busier season come the heat of, of the summer in July, August, September. Well- well, Jody, we know a lot of people are home right now, right? Because yeah. they don't have much of a choice. Is there anything they can do, especially if they live in kind of these wildfire prone areas? Is there anything they can do to help out, to help mitigate this perhaps this summer? Yeah, there most definitely is. So um, the biggest thing people can do is follow the FireSmart principles. So on the FireSmart BC website, um, there's a ton of information about things you can do, but it's it's as simple as looking at the building materials that you're using if you're putting up a new fence, for example, rather than using a highly flammable wood product, maybe there's something else. Um, the vegetation that you choose, uh, there's some vegetation like cedars that are quite susceptible to fire and then other uh, vegetation that can actually help to slow fire down. So things like that, um, you know, keeping your gutters clean of, of those dead leaves and your yard clean of um, woody debris and things. Um, lots of different things that you can do that are, are relatively inexpensive and uh, and a perfect time of year to do it as you're doing spring cleanup around the yard. Oh, no kidding, because we have a lot of that on our list right now, right? <laughs> we all do, right? <laughs> yes. You do it kind of with a a fire smart lens on it, then we can make it that much more effective. All right, let's get that message out there. Jody, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. That is Jody Lucius, who's a spokesperson with BC Wildfire Service. Uh, wildfire season, I know, is not that far ahead of us. They are already in their preparations. Last year, they caught a bit of a break. The weather cooperated, but of course, we know the previous two years had been terrible for wildfires. So you heard her say it. There are things that you can do. So if you are stuck at home and if you live in that kind of wildfire prone area, if you go to their FireSmart website, you can see the tips that they have to kind of clear up the brush around your house, anything that might be dry and, you know, tinder, that kind of thing. So clean all of that up. But they are closely watching uh, what the weather is going to be like over the next little while and preparing because COVID-19 is even impacting wildfire season right now.